welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending September 23rd, 2023. This week, Hollywood holds its breath as the writers and the studios talk into the weekend. I'm Kim Hollis, soon to be boosted. Nice. Yeah. With me are Tim Bridey, content creator and gamer eliminated from postseason contention. Is this about baseball or football? You decide. (laughs) (laughs) Also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride and streaming media analyst who has 40 homers and 60 stolen bases less than Ronald Acuna Jr. Oh, no. 68 stolen bases less. Let's get it right. (laughs) He is one of one as a sports talent. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burriel, who's nearly been won over to David Zaslov's point of view, at least according to leaks from the studios. I have? <laughs> what my agent forwarded me. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we spoke at length about the impact of the Disney Charter Agreement on the future of the cable bundle and only touched on the ongoing turmoil in Hollywood due to the ongoing writers and actors strikes. This week, as the fallout of the Disney Charter Agreement begins to materialize, Hollywood holds its breath as reports are emerging that the Writers Guild and the studios are close to an agreement. Or is it too good to be true? Yeah, I'm afraid of making predictions here because the moment we hit stop on the recording, things are going to go another way. It's good that for days now, since at least Thursday, the writers and the studios have been talking and the studios have leaked repeatedly that, oh, we're close to an agreement. And in fact, earlier this week, the writers and studios together released a statement indicating that they will continue talking. So good for them. I hope this resolves sooner rather than later. Things have gotten pretty bleak in Hollywood, but watch out for anyone declaring that the strike is over. We'll know that the strike is over when the agreements have been made public. Yeah, a lot of this is Ario Speedwagon, heard it from a friend who, heard it from a friend who. That's the sort of thing we're witnessing right now. And it sure seems like two parties are working hard at this and neither one of them are the writers. And what I mean by that is the Hollywood corporate executives really want you to believe this strike is nearly over and agents are interfering every which way to let you know, hey, everyone should be taking these deals. Meanwhile, the writers are like, we just want what we've always said we wanted, which is causing problems for everyone because they're actually holding to their guns this time, which hasn't been the case in previous negotiations. So whenever anyone says, hey, this is definitely at the end, I'm like, well, that's interesting information, but I'm going to believe it when I see it. And Raul, you're right. If we say right now this strike will probably be over in 72 hours, it'll go on another three months. And if we say, and nothing's going to happen anytime soon, it'll be settled by the time the podcast goes live. That's just the way this seems to be going so far. And yet, there's been a couple of big stories in the streaming world that have been overshadowed by these negotiations. The first of which is an actual announcement from Warner Brothers Discovery about the sports streaming tier that we mentioned just last week. It's got a pretty silly name, though. David, what what are they calling it? 
I don't know. It's Bleacher Report something. I can't possibly be bothered with this. All we know is whenever we order AEW pay-per-views, we have to use the Bleacher Report app. And Kim, it's legitimately the worst streaming service app ever created, isn't it? Well, in a world with the Max app, it's hard to say that it's the very worst. (laughs) That's a fair point. Yes, but I will say that the Bleacher Report app is frustrating in how you use it and being able to fast forward effectively or rewind effectively. So yeah, I I feel like they've got a ways to go with that technology. Kim actually missed a match at a pay-per-view when we had my nephew over a couple of weeks ago, and I've been trying to show it to her ever since, and it was the what turned out to be the final match of CM Punk in AEW against uh, Samoa Joe. Kim still hasn't watched that yet, and when I try and show her, this isn't a joke. This is like a real thing. It takes 12 minutes to fast forward through the entire pay-per-view on the app, and they're saying right now that's going to be the app they use to do their live sports and i'm just thinking to myself boy you were really committed to this bit if you were going to overlook every devastating failure of this app and anchor your entire nba sports on this product because nba sports is everything to tnt and tbs i mean everything that the charles barkley stuff that's how they're still getting ratings and if they're going to risk that with this app go with god my child yeah, some some data points here. Starting October 5th, you will be able to pay an extra $10 a month to add this Bleacher Report sports streaming service to Max. It will be an add-on to Max. It will not be a separate service. You won't be able to get it without first getting Max. Although if you are an existing Max subscriber, uh, you will get it included until February 29th. And as uh, David alluded, this will include uh, the sports offerings from Warner Bros. Discovery, which is the NBA on TNT and TBS, as well as the upcoming NHL hockey season, which is why the announcement's being made now. It is to some degree in the wake of the Disney Charter announcement, but they needed to make this announcement sooner rather than later because the NHL season is starting soon. There is no irony here, I think, to say that you get it free through February 29th because then something a little crazy happens in March. Isn't that right? You would be referencing March Madness, and that's just one of many questions we have about all of this. I, I don't even know where to start. It is that strange an announcement, and after all this time, I can't believe it's still this indecisive, but that's where we are with this. As a reminder, we need to talk about this as if it's not nothing. They basically are just announcing a new service that's $120 annually. As a reminder, HBO Max had been $99 for ages until it switched to Max, and now they're trying to sell it for $129, $149, but you could still find $99 deals, which means they're effectively doubling the price of their Max service with this. Now, for live sports, that's not unreasonable. I'm not going to pretend like it is, but if you don't like the NBA, you know, you're not going to pay this. And the problem is, this is why we have carriage fees in the first place, is you guarantee the money from everyone, whether they're watching or not. And that's one of the concerns about streaming services with live sports is you're no longer guaranteeing the money. Somebody has to pay for that somewhere. It's not happening here. The other thing is they have not been able to secure a deal with AEW for wrestling, which seemed like a foregone conclusion. The reason why is AEW's contracts run out in 2024. That is not something they can guarantee if they start selling this product for a year right now. A lot of this seems ill-considered, rushed, and snap judgment. And I think a lot of it is in serious danger of failing 
right off the bat the way that CNN Plus did. I don't think it'll be that dramatic, but this was not a good announcement in any way. Speaking of not good announcements, the other big story that dropped this week on a Friday, almost like they were trying to bury it, is that if you're a Prime Video subscriber, Congratulations. Welcome to ad-supported streaming. All Prime Video subscribers will now get ads in their streaming unless they pay an extra $3 a month for their Amazon Prime, at which point they will then become ad-free. They have essentially created the biggest ad-supported streaming service in the world almost overnight. This begins in 2024. Anyone who is a Amazon Prime subscriber gets Prime Video, and you used to get it without ads. Now you're getting it with ads unless you pay extra. In the meantime, Amazon Freebie is all like, what about us? We've always had ads. Yeah, I mean, you've hit on two essential points right there, neither of which should be understated. Let's start with the second one. Does this mean the end of Amazon Freebie and Amazon just hasn't announced it yet? What do you think? I don't know, because I would argue that a lot of people who operate Prime Video aren't even sure what Freebie is. And anyone who wants to watch something on Freebie would be a little bit confounded as to how you're supposed to access that stuff. In fact, we will all tell you, you can often find or maybe maybe always find freebie content on Prime Video. So mm. what is all this? Yeah, yeah. Amazon doesn't even know what freebie is because like, like we pointed out, a few months ago with Jury Duty, yeah, you can get the Freebie app and watch it there. But also if you just go to Amazon Prime, you'll, you would find it listed under free. Like, wait, like you don't have to, but you can watch this without being subscribed among, among their, their other shows. So like, what even is it? It's at this point, it's, it almost be better off to just, just kill it and just go with, you know, free on prime or whatever, you know, free without prime or something like that, you know, cause they, they just, it, it's just too confusing for everybody. And Raul touched on the other point here, which is just essential to this conversation. There are hundreds of millions of people who subscribe to Amazon Prime Video. Now, how many of them they use it? We've had this debate since the beginning of the podcast. It's still argumentative based on which data you believe, but that is just an almost incomprehensible amount of customers. They're now going to be distributing ads. And it frankly makes Netflix's service almost look like a joke in this one regard. I mean, we suddenly have a massive, a massive client base that is about to receive ads that will generate new revenue for Amazon, or at a minimum, they'll pay $3 to not have it. So Amazon just basically snuck it in on Friday. Hi, we're about to change the industry. No further questions. <laughs> Yeah, it does make them an advertising powerhouse. And of course, it's not like ads is new to Amazon. Besides the whole freebie business, Amazon has been streaming Thursday Night Football since last season with ads. And that was a big deal because Amazon had to make deals with advertisers and sell make goods on guaranteed ratings on those shows. So they were clearly building up to something. This is the end result of Amazon spinning up an ad service last year on Thursday Night Football. The other point I'd make here is that for the longest time, Amazon has been offering its content free of charge and they've just been riding off the loss. By changing this monetization process just ever so slightly, really, they're no longer willing to just completely lose money on the service. Now they're going to try and make it not necessarily pay it for itself, but at least pay partially. And I think that's an interesting insight into how Wall Street 
is now viewing all of these products. And that is, they are ad services, whether they're supposed to be or intended to be or not, which is going to be the way we're going to look at it moving forward, even though none of us really likes it. All right, Tim, we haven't talked about the box office for a few weeks, so let's quickly cover that. Yeah, I guess there's a couple of things to talk about. So, you know, we do have a couple of winners and losers for September. The Nun 2 opened to 32.6 million a few weeks ago. And if you forgot, that's part of the Conjuring universe, which has been one of the more reliable mid-tier franchises over the last decade. Uh, 63.2 million domestic as of this Friday. So Sure, it was cheap to make, well, relatively, but this franchise has actually you know, been surprisingly resilient because it includes the Annabelle movies too, by the way. The first Nun was a really terrible movie, so I'm kind of surprised that this did in any way well. Yeah, and this one wasn't reviewed well either, but people just can't get enough of, of the stuff and that's cheap horror is always been uh, a good thing to do, whether it was, you know, even if the movie wasn't good, whether, you know, even before the pandemic, this this was always a winner and continues to be, which is which is a good thing to see. They sell this based on the premise and the visual, and that's one of the things that I've always tried to get across. People don't really care about story, but you show that evil supernatural nun outfit and it freaks people out and it makes them intrigued and makes them want to watch. And they know this and they take advantage of it because they've never bothered to write a for any of these things that wasn't an embarrassment, but here we are. <laughs> uh, Equalizer 3 is at 77.8 million domestically after opening over Labor Day weekend. Uh, it's going to fall a little bit short of the 100 million mark, which the first two just barely made it over. And that's really just, I guess, with one franchise, you can kind of sum up pre-pandemic and post-pandemic box office. And I guess that ties into with the other good example is A Haunting in Venice, open last weekend. That's Kenneth Branagh's third go with a Hercule Poirot movie based on one of the lesser known Agatha Christie novels this time. Uh, open last weekend, 14.2 million. It's about 21 million after yesterday, which just shows that older audiences have been less likely to go back to the theaters because we definitely saw that effect with Death on the Nile when that finally came out in 2022. Yeah, I think that what happened is they had a bad taste in their mouth about what happened with Death on the Nile, mm -hmm. and they wanted to give it another shot. But realistically, it probably was a franchise that only had one film in it, and they tried to make three. Um, I thought the trailer for Haunting in Venice was really, really, really good, but it didn't have that one thing we're talking about right now. It didn't have that memorable visual and whatnot. People don't really want to work with horror films. They want just very straightforward, easily explainable concepts. And this is just too highbrow. And that's why it didn't even beat the second weekend of the Nun 2. It's another frustration for Disney. And we've got a third one coming out next week with the creator. So I'm, I'm just really exhausted by all this. Yeah, we knew Murder on the Orient Express was big. I figured if COVID didn't happen, Death on the Isle would have probably done a notch below that, but it really cut the legs out from, from the franchise on top of it being just, you know, you started with the most famous book and then took it down a notch from there. But I uh, mean, the real problem with that one was they cast the wrong person and that person turned out to be, well, allegedly a cannibal. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. Problematic, yes. And by, by the way, that person was involved with the explanation of the murder, so there's no way to cut them out of the film. They're stuck with it. <laughs> Uh, speaking of losers, The Expendables 4 came in with $750,000 on Thursday. And as of this recording, I don't see a reporting for Friday yet. And I don't think they want to tell anyone. 
Oh my god, that that movie should have been straight to video. They yeah, that, put it on Paramount Plus. Yes, that's the type of movie you make for streaming. Exactly. Yes, but yeah, that's going to be a big disaster this weekend. Along with, uh, I guess you know, we also had the release of Dumb Money, but just not they deciding to go with a platform release, which was a dumb idea back then, and it's still a dumb idea now. I mean, it's doing all right. It did make just under a million on Friday in not a lot of theaters, but just come on, just put it out there. And also, do you know they made a My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3? Because I totally forgot until I looked at box office this week. Yeah, two weekends ago, it made $10 million, and it's at $21.6 million to date. Okay, sure. Why not? I wonder what percentage of people know that there was a My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. Right. And it made, you know, almost $60 million domestically, but it was very, very targeted. It was just really the loyalists of the first film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely failed to recapture the ridiculous magic that that first movie had. It was one of the most amazing box office stories of, of the time. It held for many, many years as just like the epitome of just a movie having word of mouth and legs, which really don't exist anymore. Uh, but yeah, again, this type of thing that probably just could have gone straight to streaming and no one would have been, oh, wow, that's stupid. They would have been like, oh, hey, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. Oh, and and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. What do you know? (laughs) I find this franchise disappointing because it stars John Corbett, who, when he first appeared in Northern Exposure, I thought was going to be a huge star. But ever since, all I've ever seen him in is these Big Fat Greek Wedding movies. He just never really lived up to his potential. He's one of those actors that I actually admire because he doesn't just take paychecks. He only works when he really, really likes something. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's commendable. I'll mention somebody else I adore, and that is Jason Scott Lee is the same way. He lives in Hawaii, doesn't want to leave Hawaii, so he'll do Hawaiian productions, and that's pretty much it. We also have Josh Hartnett, who falls into that bucket as well. There are some people who are just really, really discriminating about what they pick. And it just turns out that the attempted cash grab on My Big Fat Creek Wedding 3, everyone should have known that that was just a terrible idea for a dead franchise. But here we are. If Nia Vardalos needed money, she should have just asked. Exactly. I think a GoFundMe might have been more successful. Yeah, so not a lot of great news at the box office for September. And yeah, as you mentioned, David, the creator is next week. And I, I'm expecting not much from that. And also the uh, sequel to Barbenheimer, everyone pointed out when we saw the release schedule. Saw Patrol. Yes, a Saw movie oh and a Paw God. Patrol movie. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they don't switch those reels. Save us, Taylor Swift. Save us. <laughs> She's coming. She's coming. All right. So how about some ratings then? Yes, let's do it. All right. We have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, August 21st to Sunday, August 27th, 2023. The top original series isn't actually what I was expecting as who is Aaron Carter lands in first with just over a billion minutes for seven episodes. I was worried for a moment. This was a true crime documentary, but no, it's it's not. It's a drama series. We did talk about it on What's New. I certainly didn't expect it to have this much of an impact just from the description though. Yeah, it seemed very under the radar. Even in watching the trailer, it had this very action, kick-ass, spy vibe to it that also suggested that, hmm, low budget, no one's ever going to notice it. But evidently, people noticed it. Yeah, just out of nowhere to, to crack a billion with no, you know, like I said, no, no famous names, just 
I mean, interesting enough concept, but like, yeah, just did not expect this at all. This is a, a big upset. I'm curious to see what happens uh, next week. It does it go higher for with the full, full week of availability. All right. Here's what I was expecting to top the originals this week is here's Ahsoka from Disney Plus, 829 million minutes for the first two episodes, which arrived on August 22nd. While that is almost the entire week as episodes will be arriving Tuesday, that's still quite good. And Disney did say this had been one of their best performers ever. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Great news. I think it's well-deserved. Ahsoka is a very strong Star Wars series. And unlike a Marvel Secret Invasion, I think this one's going to hold its audience throughout. Mm-hmm. Does it help that it's a direct spinoff, essentially, of Mandalorian, which had been the flagship Star Wars show for Disney Plus? I think it's 20% that and 80% the fact that people really love this character. I mean, she is currently appearing at Disney Parks, and it has been a massive deal. Like, there have been crowds just following her across the park. It's just a beloved character. I'm not the Star Wars super fan by any stretch, but I think she appeared during the Clone Wars cartoon and people fell in love with her. Is that right? Anyone know? That's right. Other than her brief appearances in The Mandalorian, this character has only ever been seen as an animated character in The Clone Wars. So the fact that bringing her to live action has been as successful as it has suggests that there was a lot of demand from the Star Wars fan base here and it's being met. The other thing to keep in mind here is that Hayden Christensen is going to appear and they're going to use the de-aging process on him. And that means there's probably an additional ratings pop coming. Yeah, I'm curious to see where it goes. It adds episodes. Disney Plus shows tend to start strong and then they drop a little bit as even as they add episodes, not to the extent that Secret Invasion did. That was just an outright flop for, for Disney Plus. So, I mean, I think it'll it'll dip a little bit, but then I, I think it can actually finish over a billion once we get the full season, which will be eight episodes. Until it leaves to third with 632 million minutes and 17 total episodes. On the 23rd, the final episode of its third season arrived and was about the University of Florida football team and some guy named Urban Meyer. I guess I don't think I'm that surprised then that this one attracted attention. Because Urban Meyer, he's such a great guy, right? That's bait and I will not take it. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> I am sure that people were probably tuning in, at least even partially, just for the true crime element. <laughs> Bad, but true. Yeah, there there is, um, unfortunately, some some crime involved with uh, with this subject matter, but yeah. All right, Lincoln Lawyer is still here in fourth, 587 million minutes for 20 episodes. Hulu's only murders in the building, 559 million minutes in 24 episodes. Uh, last week's top original show, Painkiller, drops to six, 551 million minutes. And new, or I guess returning in seventh, The Ultimatum, Marry or Move On, 489 million minutes for 18 episodes. The second season of this incredibly stupid show dropped on the 23rd. We're going to see it again next week because on the 30th, they add the finale and then a reunion show because that's what Netflix likes to do with their dating shows. Dear Netflix, move on from this series. Why? This costs like... $15 to me. Don't praise the machine. <laughs> uh, Ragnarok returns in eighth, 471 million minutes and 18 total episodes. It's six episodes, third season dropped on the 24th. So we may see it again next week. Uh, Originals wraps up with Gabby's Dollhouse at ninth, 347 million minutes and Futurama returning in 10th, 335 million minutes and 140 episodes. Movies is led by You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah, 495 million minutes. Starring Adam Sandler's kids and also Adam Sandler. That was a great title and I think we knew it would do pretty well. Uh, I just thought it might be better, but I want to lean towards the idea that there's more second screen viewing on this one. Yeah, that sounds fair. 
But again, Adam Sandler's Netflix deal just, you know, continues to really pay dividends for both parties. I like to think of it now as multi-generational now. Like once he's put out to pasture, they'll just move on to the Sandler girls. <laughs> oh, this is a good start if uh, if that's the case. I think they're still girls. I don't think they're anywhere near 18 yet. Which they're, means yeah, they're early teenagers, I believe. They could have a, you know, 50-year career like their father just on Netflix. <laughs> Meanwhile, new and second from Max, The Flash, 392 million minutes. Not necessarily a strong showing for a movie that was expected to do so much better at the box office than it actually did. Mm -hmm. But the difference here between a Netflix movie and a Max movie is that people intentionally went to Max to watch this, while on the other hand, people go to Netflix and then randomly watch shows. Netflix, Netflix tells them what to watch, whereas yes. Yes, if you're viewing something on Netflix, yes, it's because Netflix is telling you what to watch. If you go to another service, you're, you're selecting that program or movie. But yes, I, can, I, I agree there. Right. Uh, Netflix is The Monkey King does move up to third, 387 million minutes after we saw that premiere last week. Uh, the next few have been around for a few weeks now. The Pope's Exorcist, 345 million minutes. Heart of Stone, 328 million minutes in fifth. Peacock's the Super Mario Brothers movie is still here, 322 million minutes. And Disney Plus's Gardens of the Galaxy, volume three, 300 million minutes. New in eighth is from Hulu, Vacation Friends 2, 246 million minutes. That does not match what the first one did in terms of ratings and also quality. That's too bad. But at the same time, I think Vacation Friends was a one-off thing. And yeah, it, it, it didn't need to have a sequel. It was mm -hmm. it was fine. It was it was fun for what it was. And they, they didn't need to do this because it was not very good. It was just they stretched the premise way too thin. Kevin and I are just going to sit here and giggle at the thought that you're mentioning quality while discussing a John Cena story. So go <laughs> right ahead, gentlemen. <laughs> I keep saying, you know, it's, he's a cartoon goofball in this in this movie, and it's just perfect for the type of person that he is. Moana is here in ninth from Disney Plus, 245 million minutes. And we wrap up movies with Prime Video's The Black Demon. This came out on April 28th. I don't know why it's here now. It appears to be, um, you can pick your joke, either Great Value the Meg or the Meg's non-union Mexican equivalent. <laughs> I want to make sure I heard that right. You said April 28th? Uh, yeah, apparently it was a theatrical release and then uh, showed up on Prime fairly recently, which I, I guess is why it's here. I have no memory of this as a theatrical release. I have to go back no, and check my notes. It has no reported box office, but yeah, that's oh. the information I have. So maybe it just played internationally and not domestically. But yeah, Big Shark, that apparently is a uh, Mexican legend. So there you go. There is one exciting thing about this movie's chart, even if the numbers aren't great. And that's, except for Moana, every one of these movies is from 2023. So that makes me happy that there was nothing stupid from, you know, 15 years ago that Netflix decided to make the biggest movie in the world. Oh, I thought the excitement came from the obvious end of John Cena's acting career. <laughs> no, he's just hanging out, hanging out on SmackDown until the strike ends. And how sad is that? Go yeah. home to your family, for the love of God. And then The Rock showed up, too, because he's bored as well. So I, I guess they just need stuff to do while, while they can't make movies. Look, everyone knows I love The Rock, but seriously, how desperate is your need for the love of strangers if you can't go a month without it? I mean, seriously. <laughs> Acquired is 10 shows we have seen before, still led by Suits, sliding down the chart 2.6 billion minutes. So give it another two, three months and Bluey will finally take over with its billion minutes that it's consistently put up for the last few weeks now. Ballers is still here on 5th. We saw that show up last week after it arrived on Netflix. Apparently it's still on Max as well. 656 million minutes viewed for 47 episodes. Uh, and that's all I have to say about the ratings this week. I am excited to see where Ahsoka goes over the next next month as well. 
Okay. Thank you, Tim. Tim, can we not do green lights and cancellations this week? Just because we don't talk about it, David, doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> it does, too. If we don't mention any of these things, they don't become real. Yeah. In green lights and cancellations, studios continue to punish us for the consequences of the strike as Max has canceled Winning Time, or as I often call it, that Lakers show. I'm going to get through this without saying any swears, but they intentionally <laughs> wrote season two and anticipation of having several more seasons. They actually said they had it specked out into the 2010s, apparently. And yet, at a cliffhanger in 1984, David Zaslov canceled this show, and I want to break stuff. He is killing HBO and everything that it stands for. He sure is. I'm a big fan of the show. I think it's so good. And this is just a complete shame. We actually haven't watched the season finale yet because we've been too angry about this. I'm sorry. Series finale. <laughs> yeah, series finale. Mm -hmm. Also, Peacock has reversed their decision to go ahead with a second season of the Pitch Perfect spinoff Bumper in Berlin, which I also liked. Yeah, this, so personal. Show, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. this show was harmless. It was light and airy and entertaining. You could have watched the whole thing in an evening. Uh, and yes, we were also left on a cliffhanger here. So this is very disappointing news. Okay, as always, we finish up with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And David and I watched The Flash. I did not enjoy The Flash. I had wanted to see The Flash because Michael Keaton returns as Batman in the film. And Michael Keaton is a joy, as he almost always is. He's only in the film for moments at a time. The movie is just haphazard, annoying, poorly edited. I hated it for the most part, other than a few slight moments. So do not recommend. You know you don't have confidence in a superhero's story arc when you have them saving multiple babies at the start because you think that's the only way you can get the audience on the character's side. This was an abomination and Michael Keaton deserves so much better. I, I mean, does. I can't help but think the Batgirl movie would have been a much better representation and conclusion of his work as Batman. Agreed. I can't imagine it wouldn't have been. At least he has a lot of other great recent projects that he's been in. So I'm really happy for that, including as a villain in Spider-Man, where he was also fantastic. Yeah, but I think I might just consider Birdman like the conclusion of his Batman arc. That's kind of where I am. Birdman is like the end of Batman. Yep. All right, Raul, how about you? This week, I'm going back to a show I mentioned in one of our earliest episodes, and that's Taskmaster, or as I inexplicably and repeatedly pronounced it three years ago, Taskmaster. This show airs on Channel 4 in the UK, but all episodes are made available for free on YouTube, which is where I've been catching up. The Series 16 premiere just dropped yesterday, and I've spent the last couple of weeks watching Series 15 as those episodes appeared on YouTube as well. This is what they would call in the UK a panel show, where a group of celebrities, usually comedians, are recruited, usually in a competition of some sort. We've seen some variation of that here in the US, like when Chris Hardwick hosted At Midnight 
website on Comedy Central. In the case of Taskmaster, our host, Greg Davies, assigns the competitors different tasks to accomplish. It's things like eating a watermelon the fastest or emptying the contents of an egg by breaking it into the fewest pieces. And then we watch a video of each competitor trying to complete the task and we laugh at their humiliation. The highlights, though, are when the competitors figure out a hack or better yet, when the solution to some puzzle is in plain sight. Like last season, the competitors had to collect as many pineapples as they could, except the pineapples were floating out in the middle of a murky pond and they couldn't enter the water. Only after the contestants ran out of time and went around a corner did they realize oh, there was a whole bunch of pineapples waiting for them right there. There's a different group of contestants on Taskmaster every season, and they've brought back some in the past to do a contest of champions. I find it a great opportunity to discover some UK and international comedic talent I didn't know. Although you may find some comedians you recognize, like Noel Fielding, who's currently a host on the Great British Baking Show. And this latest season includes Sue Perkins, who previously was a host on the Baking Show. I don't know that there's another show out there that makes me laugh as hard as Taskmaster. It's guaranteed entertainment and you can find all the episodes on YouTube right now. Thanks, Raul. What's been keeping you busy, Tim? Uh, I started the first couple episodes of the third season of Only Murders in the Building and it's still great. I am so happy with the with the first two episodes. Paul Rudd as this jackass actor is great. Uh, even though you know he's he's the victim this this season, and what they're doing so far with building up the mystery is is wonderful. Of course, all the leads are are great. And if they finally don't recognize Selena Gomez with an Emmy nominee for this season, what are we even doing? Yeah. The fact that they have Meryl Streep on this season yes. is just dumbfounded. Yes. <laughs> she is spectacular and she just elevates everyone in every scene she's in. So she's just amazing. Absolutely. Yes. That's the first two were, were absolutely solid. I am looking forward to continuing it when we are finished here. Okay, David, how about you? Yeah, so in addition to The Flash, we've watched a couple of things recently, or at least I have. I am not quite, but I'm almost caught up on The Morning Show, which I'll be honest with you, I primarily did so that the next time I see my sister, we can talk television. Uh, we saw her uh, last month, and one of the things she mentioned was that she wanted to talk The Morning Show with us. I felt guilty about that, so I'm catching up. And last night, this is a real thing that happened, Kim woke up in the middle of the night at like 2, 2.30 in the morning, just in time for me to show her Steve. Carell being killed off the show. Literally, the moment she woke up, it was happening. It was hysterical. They did something with his cancellation this year that was both really impressive and absolutely infuriating. The Morning Show season one was kind of a mess behind the scenes, and a lot of the stuff that happened kind of became improvised. And what happened was they loved Steve Carell. And they canceled Steve Carell's character and made him an absolute monster. So season two of this has kind of been evaluating the two aspects of that and then giving him a proper send off. And the episode after his death was just 50 minutes of trauma. It really was just like everything made it a little bit worse. And uh, I still think of it as a lesser version of Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom. And that is the unmistakable inspiration here. As a matter of fact, the whole thing feels like a love letter to Aaron Sorkin, but with some Desperate Housewives thrown in. And it doesn't work as much for me as maybe as it would other people, but uh, it's such an impressive number of talents. And uh, I like it for that, if nothing else. And then Kim and I also watched Bottoms. And Kim, I think it's fair to say you liked it more than I did, didn't you? 
I would say that's probably true. Yeah. It's very funny, or I found it very funny. It's also very weird. So it's certainly not going to be a movie for everyone. It actually, and this isn't a joke, it reminded me of the movie The Warriors. I know that's just a completely random take on this, but I actually had the epiphany that this film might be a clever take on the idea of what, what the world would be like if there were a defund the police movement that succeeded because there is not a police officer to be found in this extremely violent, very, very funny film. And in a way, it's kind of like the water boy, you know, the, the big glass, of the water boy all came when he had these huge violent sacks. It's kind of like that where the most raucous laughter occurs when that happens. Unfortunately, because the subject matter, Hollywood ran away screaming from this one, but I am a hundred percent confident that it is going to be just beloved for many years to come because as far as twisted senses of humor go this one is way up there very very funny i wouldn't even necessarily recommend it for everyone and i want to be clear the leads are surprisingly awful human beings that's fair isn't it kim Yes, they're terrible humans, although I would say they both maybe grow a little bit during the course of the the film, though not maybe as much as you would think someone would grow in in the course of a film. (laughs) Exactly. So I was kind of conflicted by the end of it. I wasn't entirely sure if I was rooting for the right things to happen. But uh, I definitely think that Bottoms is one of those films that will have people talking for a long time. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Streaming Void. Be sure to watch for us again next week.